What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, Blue Wire listeners. I'm Greg Olson. I'm excited to partner with Blue Wire to bring you TE1 a podcast where I interview the tight ends who have revolutionized the position. Listen in as I have raw, in-depth conversations with the all-time greats like Shannon Sharp, Tony Gonzalez, Travis Kelsey, and George Kittle. We'll explore how the tight end position has changed over the last 60 years and what it takes to be the very best. Subscribe to TE1 from Blue Wire Studios today so you're ready for the August premiere. In the Know, the Bourbon Street Shots Podcast. We're your hosts, Shemit Dua and Mason Ginsberg, and this is all Pelicans all the time. Welcome to In the Know. This episode is brought to you by betonline.ag for all your sports betting needs because the NBA is back. And because the NBA is back, we have uh, our favorite guest, Michael McNamara, here to preview the restart with us. Mac, what's going on, man? How you been hanging out in, in Utah? Last we kind of heard from you, you you had COVID-19. What, what was that like and how are you feeling now? Uh, wasn't bad physically. Mentally, it was rough. I ran out of TV shows and movies really quick and, uh, had to settle for some things that I'm not too proud of of watch, but doing good now. And, uh, yeah, excited to jump on this pod because you guys promised me that I would get an hour of Mason puppy conversation. That's why I'm here. (laughs) Okay. Given the way you tweet, I'm curious what could you possibly be embarrassed about watching? Um, it was, it was a corny. So upload on Amazon prime, like it just wasn't a good show. And I I bailed on that after like two or three episodes. (laughs) That's what I would do normally. Like normally the first episode I'd give a shot and I mean, nope, not worth my time. And I stuck through the whole thing and yeah, just kind of, kind of embarrassed by it um watched a lot of bad action films um that i'm not too proud of but yeah upload is the one that just in no other situation would i have uh would i have finished that show but went all the way through yeah i remember you updating us about it in the group chat as you were watching it, it seemed definitely seemed like a hate watch situation yeah i mean it 
like it had an interesting premise i'm sure that's why mason yeah. watched it and it, but it was just like, like it was it was and the reviews weren't weren't talk. bad and so that kind of helped make my final decision i don't think i mean i don't think they were great but i don't think they were like awful yeah yeah so that's the one for me but happy to report out of that um only have time for good tv now watching watching dave a show that i really wish somebody would have told me about while i was quarantining but um yeah that's that's pretty much what i'm up to right now and looking at pictures of of mason's puppy speaking of mason how how is the puppy it's been uh what couple weeks now since you've gotten him maybe just over a week or so what how is he adapting or and how are you guys adapting <laughs> yeah he's uh he's 10 weeks old we've had him for two and a half weeks now and he's the i think the overall uh work effort and taking care of a puppy is about what i expected but i think it's just coming in different ways like it's just it's more mentally exhausting and just always having to have eyes on on, on the pup to make sure that it's not doing anything you shouldn't um and but yeah I, th- I think the worst part and i think i, s- I said this to last last time we talked but it, he's a, he's more of a biter than i expected and i'm hoping that goes with time but we'll see yeah definitely give him some time to get used to you guys and get used to being a big old pup but you know i'm glad you're you're having fun with him and i'm very jealous yep. every time i see the pictures that you post so keep on sending them over for but to transition to basketball speak, we have a lot to talk about on our episode. We have a couple topics, and uh, I feel like we can just start right off with um, a topic that I'm pretty passionate about. I recently wrote an article about draft strategy, and honestly, I'm excited to talk to Mac about this because this idea uh, all came together a few months ago. Mac and I got on a Zoom call and you know we had mapped out what we were going to do with regards to draft strategy i think and mac it may have been when you were were quarantining and you were like you know i don't really like how people define hit rate when it comes to drafts and i I don't really think teams are successful because all these guys that teams end up drafting you know none of them really stick around for much longer um you know they don't really stick around for a second contract and you look at contenders you know like how many contenders have like first round picks that are role players that they've, you know, that are homegrown instead, instead of outsourced. And, you know, we were kicking this idea around figuring out, is there a good way to measure all this and what would, what needs to happen in order to get it done? And it was kind of a a project that ended up spanning many months, but I think, you know, you guys had a chance to read the article. I wanted to get your thoughts uh, on it first before we uh, get into the meat of the, the, discussion yeah I'm, I'm curious what mason thinks because i never really got to talk to him on his perspective of this so what were kind of your initial thoughts when you read it mason um well so it's hard because i already had preconceived biases from reading the discussions and i know that um you know i haven't been really as, as close to the conversation as both of y'all but I, I i've been keeping up and kind of knew what the conclusion was uh while while reading so um, one, I wanted to shout out this, the overall structure to it. And, and it's not easy, um, to write something like this that says insightful and takes as much effort and also like put the time into the other parts of it. Like all, all the, all the different infographics or charts that really help to make it more digestible for, um, for a lot of people. Uh, so that I, I thought that was awesome. And, um, 
I'm also a little bit uh, insulted in the last sentence, and I do want to talk about that um, after we get into the real meat of the article around the uh, idea lost. Uh, without this article, it would be another idea lost in a flow <laughs> of group chat, and that's an, a that's a personal attack on every single one of us. M- maybe me especially with the bad puns. People probably just check out for days at a time, but um, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you defend yourself on that first. What is there to defend? We we talk about like three and a half million things in, yep. in our group chat and none of us actually end up writing about it. And it's true. And I think sometimes you just need that support from people yeah. that are equally passionate about discussing this with you, but also, you know, just having that brain trust of people that are, are one knowledgeable with two kind of on the same wavelength when it comes to uh, being curious about these things. Yeah. Um, and- to me, that's the motivating factor in getting this kind of stuff done. Yeah, absolutely. But no, I mean, all, all jokes aside, I think it's I think it's interesting uh, personally for the because of the sense that I I used to I was never a, a fit over uh, best player available guy. Like I've always I've always firmly believed that you take the best player regardless of how he fits on your specific um, roster. But that said, um, I was always uh, I think I was thinking the right way for the wrong reasons uh, in the sense that I, I like taking the, the guy who you think is going to has a chance to be a, a stud versus the, just the safe play just because of the, the, the low percentage of picks that even that tend to work out even at the top of the draft. But I never thought about it in the t- context of the value he'll, uh, that player will bring to your team over the course of, you know, his, his time with that team. And, 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 uh, and so I, I thought that aspect was, very interesting and it made me realize that I maybe I was thinking in the right way or thinking of the right answer but in the wrong way and so I thought it was really well done well thanks I appreciate that I think one of the was more surprising findings for me I think this is something I discovered relatively early in the stage because um, it was one of the first things I wanted to check out when we were talking about like okay, well, you know, how much value is this going, this guy going to bring over a duration of the contract? And I think we all kind of loosely understood that typically young players take a few years to produce more than, let's say, an average replacement level player, even though we hadn't really quantified that or, or figured out what that mean. I first thing I really wanted to quantify was not their production, but to kind of look at roster turnover rate because if if it's taking three or four years for my rookie to be up to NBA speed then what does my roster look like and why does drafting for fit even matter and I think one of the biggest takeaways uh, from that for me was the league on average is turning over basically 70 over 70 percent of their roster uh, every three years I mean that that's an enormous turnover rate and yeah there's been teams that have had uh, a high continuity over the three year stretch. And those are typically teams that you might find that are contenders that are, they're in their contender window and they're trying to keep that core together. Although uh, Seth partner of the athletic recently uh, requested that data from me so he can map out win percentage and, and the continuity. And he didn't, he found a very slight correlation. So there isn't like a very strong one, but you know, you, you would expect the teams at the top were, you know, your, your peak golden state teams, your, your peak Spurs teams, the, the heatles, and, and, that, and that kind of makes sense because those are teams that are in their title window. But, you know, for all others, if you have such high roster turnover, like why even bother, you, I don't, why even bother justifying this positional fit when your roster is just going to be completely different? 
Yeah, I, I mean, you can say it better. Um, and yeah, this has been in my head for a while. Um, just to go to the origins, I will put my NFL and NBA draft knowledge up against literally anybody in the world. There is nothing that I study for and, and look at and remember. I mean, my wife and I basically, like, we don't celebrate our anniversary, the day we met, anything like that. But every single year on the NFL draft, that is our night. Like, we spend a year thinking about um, basically our tradition is what pizza we're going to create. It has to be like the most out of the box, insane idea for a pizza you've ever heard of. And we spend. Don't say like, it. And you guys haven't no, done ramen pizza? No, oh, no, no. Oh, we've no. done way more exotic than that. Um, <laughs> like my wife did a Thai version of a of the pizza that you talked about that's like way beyond anyway so that just goes to say that like the draft I would say the only thing I might know better than the draft is Seinfeld I could literally put on a Seinfeld episode at any point on any episode and tell you what the next line is going to be those are the two things I know of more than anything in the world and I go back and I watch the old drafts anytime they're on NBA TV or NFL um, network. And it's the same thing every time you'll see, you know, the Cleveland Cavaliers select or what one was I watching the other day? I was watching the one where I think they select not somebody selects like a two guard and um, somebody much better was obviously on the board. And it's the same thing every draft. They'll say, well, this guy fits into his lineup. And then they'll show the projected starting lineup. And the reason they didn't take the power forward is because they already have this guy there, whatever. And then in retrospect, you know that two years later, they lose Carlos Boozer or whatever. And it's so obvious in retrospect that every single draft mistake is for the exact same reason, yet teams make it. And then you combine that with what you were saying before, my old podcast partner, Ryan Schwan, used to put out the same article every year um, right before the draft, where he would basically look at the draft slots and what you're likely to get. He had an A player, B player, C player. I think a C player was like a sixth man through an eighth man or whatever. But it always felt wrong to me because the hit rates were fairly high. And just watching the draft, I know that that's not the case. And the it, it didn't feel right because of what you said. People look at the guy's career So when that chart is made 10 years from now, Austin Rivers will count as either a B or a C player because people will look at his career. But for the team that actually drafted him, he was an F player. He did nothing of any consequence. He was worse than what a minimum level guy would be. Same with like, look at a Ben McLemore and what he did for Sacramento Now, he might be good for Houston, and maybe he goes on to have five really good years as a sixth man, and when people look back at that draft pick, they'll grade him as a B or C player, but he was an F for the team that actually drafted him. So, you know, moving forward to the Pelicans having 
probably another lotto pick this year and maybe the last one they'll have for the next 10 years. Um, I thought it was really interesting to start thinking about what the likelihood of actual success for that pick is. And as you could kind of see through your article and some other things that we've discussed that probably would have made that article way too long, um, the likelihood of the Pelicans, say, having the 12, 13, 14, 15 pick and getting a guy who's going to actually contribute more than, say, a biannual level player um, and be on this team through his second contract or get traded for something of actual value, like the data just shows that that's even more unlikely than people tend to think it is. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm curious, and your very last comment, Mac, made me think about this. And and if has have have Schmidt or have you or has has a retroactive look been taken at some old drafts that maybe we said were really bad at the time consistently, and then end up end up changing? Like, is that something? I feel like your article begs the questions of: Are the drafts that you know we at the time we evaluated as poor really bad? And, and also the opposite. It's, it's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I didn't look at that specifically, but I think the example that people frequently give is the 2011 draft. It wasn't supposed to be a very good draft and it's produced a number of all-stars and all NBA uh, level players. Mm -hmm. And the, the opposite is, you know, there was that, um, the dream draft Mac, which one was the dream draft that recently was supposed to happen that ended up being awful. So 2014 was supposed to be like, and I even wrote an article the year before, but that was supposed to be the draft where you do not trade a first round pick because this is the super draft. And that was the one with Wiggins and Jabari at one and two. Um, and really not a ton has come of it, but people were touting the 2014 draft for years. Yeah, I think I looked at it and there was eight or nine busts in the first round that uh, already busted out before they concluded their rookie contract in, in that draft. So it was a little bit ridiculous. But no, I don't, you know, I didn't specifically look into it from that point of view. It was just more from uh, what they did in their first contract. And I think, you know, what was surprising to me uh, twofold is one, the executive that I talked to, uh, also, all the people I talked to, I didn't share my data with them initially. I just asked them questions. They weren't even leading questions like, oh, what do you think about a player and, and what, um, you know, on their first contract versus a minimum contract? I didn't, I didn't ask any of that. You know, there were very open-ended questions that I sent them a list for. I think one of them specifically was, uh, so the two questions that, that, that were most frequently answered uh, when I reached out were, the first question was, you know, what's the value of a rookie scale contract? Uh, beyond you know you drafting a star and having a, re a really cheap cost control star like what's the value of a rookie scale contract so it was a pretty open-ended question and the second um, question was you know what's your take on drafting for need versus drafting for fit so both pretty open-ended questions and they weren't leading at all and organically the two people I talked to discussed things that I was already looking at and I had already discussed with Mac uh, looking at in terms of the data so the exec I talked to, you know, he brought up hit right by himself. He talked about, you know, there's people I've worked with who do want to measure success with what the guy ultimately turns out to, because I guess it makes them look better as a GM in retrospect. Like, yeah, I picked, you know, I picked that guy that ended up being good eight years down the line, but 
you know, that, but he feels that that's not really a good way to look at it. And I, and I agree with him, you know, that's not a good way to look at it because what, what did he actually do for your team? And so I was, I was surprised that there, he, he was aware of this issue and he had worked with people um, that were kind of complicit in this retrospective look of what this guy turned out to be. Um, but then, you know, the GM that I talked to, he went straight to comparing these guys to the like minimum replacement level players, which was, you know, the, the second thing that I'd spent a lot of time accumulating data, trying to build out a visual to compare. And I hadn't mentioned that at all. I didn't mention the word minimum at all in any capacity. And like, that was where they went to. And I'm like, man, like kind of blows me away that teams have already walked down this, uh, this, this path of thinking and they've done their own studies and they've, reach their own conclusions with their own data. And I guess it shouldn't be surprising because that's kind of literally their job, but it was surprising in a sense because you feel like, okay, well, if they're aware of this and then if this data kind of suggests there's this quote unquote optimal strategy of being more aggressive and, and going for these high upside guys, like why aren't they better? And, you know, obviously they touched upon why, why teams aren't better. And part of that is, you know, no one's actually, great at identifying what a high upside guy is you know how do you how do you identify that Draymond Green is going to be one of the best defenders of all time you know and and so there's still a large gap between scouting and even if you have the right philosophy and you've identified the right philosophy doesn't necessarily mean you'll be good at it and so that kind of ties into something that I, I feel like Mac has done a really good job of over the last few years and and looking at where the the uh, undervalued players are and who the second round uh you know s- steals are going to be and you, you've had this consistent theory mac about the the criteria that that makes it easier to predict conversely is there something you've identified uh at an mba or, or like a, a top pick level that that you typically would use to say these are going to be the studs yeah so to me it's it's two things it's going to be one out of two things it'll either be elite um i don't know how to put it because no one word defines it but like elite um physical makeup now most people will take that as vertical jump or three-quarter sprint or whatever it's not that as much as a combination of multiple things so like Kawhi leonard's let's say wingspan and hand size um is part of an elite physical makeup like something that we do not see regularly or not even regularly like it's amongst the top one percent even amongst the top one percent of athletic people in the world um so it's either that or an elite one percent skill for the position so for example let's say Jokic is passing ability for um, for a big man or clay, even in a world of shooters. Um, he's an elite shooter. But this is what has me thinking and pushing back. Like, Mason, you brought up the thing that I've been able to predict really well for the last couple of years with the second rounders. And is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? So think about it. We're saying on one end, we'll just shoot for the high upside guys, which is usually underclassmen, you know, freak athletes, whatever. 
And then I could also predict the second round guys who are going to be good because all I'm looking at is guys who don't have those traits mm-hmm. and who yep. are fourth year guys. And is like, I, my question is, let's say the Warriors take Draymond Green at seven that year and he doesn't have the insane high upside like does he become Draymond Green and then is this whole theory blown out of the water or does he never become Draymond Green let's say the Milwaukee Bucks take take um Malcolm Brogdon where they took Thon McCour instead like does he become Malcolm Brogdon or is there something about those guys getting taken in the second round maybe not having the expectations, maybe having the chip on their shoulder that make them become those guys? And is this all just a self-fulfilling prophecy where, no, you actually can take role players in the first round and they'll be good. We're just not doing it because history tells us to swing for the fences. And there's also that component, uh, I think the GM kind of touched on it, is – a lot of coaches aren't really capable of putting together a developmental program for a player that they view as a role player type player. You know, they kind of want to just insert him into that role and that's it. You know, if you're a square, you're going to be a square. You're not going to ever be a triangle or, you know, a Pentagon or something. Whereas if there is that high upside guy, you know, if you, there is a Brandon Ingram that you've drafted number two overall, you're like, okay, well, we're going to give him, you know, a decent amount of pick and roll situations that he can develop his reads. We're going to give him a little, a decent amount of off the catch situations, et cetera, et cetera, kind of incrementally increasing that player's game. But, you know, if you, like you said, if you draft the Brogdon or Draymond Green at number two, or do, does that guy ever get any of that type of development? I don't know. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, you even look at the history of number one draft picks and you can kind of see that um, it's, to teams it's it's all I feel like it's all about Mac what you said um about how you would value or who a true stud might be but I feel like after you find a guy you feel like is the sure thing teams may almost abandon that strategy and start to get more conservative and more risk averse I think is that I mean that's kind of how I sense uh how teams are reacting versus what you were talking about yeah I mean And going to the Pelicans, the other part that um, I know we talked about a little bit in the group chat that isn't in the article um, was basically what teams do when they find their stud. Once they get their LeBron James or get their Trey Young, whatever, they immediately become less risk averse. And I could point to you guys name a transcendent player ever and I'll tell you the guy that they take the next year or like once they know that guy's transcendent and it's almost always a upperclassman with a low floor um or with a low ceiling like I know New Orleans fans will remember the first guy we drafted after Chris Paul Mr. Hilton Armstrong um college senior low ceiling but it goes down the line with you know, Luke Jackson being the pick after LeBron James, Dwight Howard, once he gets established, they take fourth-year senior J.J. Redick. And then we saw the Atlanta Hawks do it last year. They got their transcendent player, and now they immediately start drafting 
for need and with lower state, like there's no way anybody could tell me that the Hawks believe that DeAndre Hunter had the fourth highest ceiling of all the guys last year. You become less risk averse. You start picking for need um, and picking for roster construct. I mean, even the Thunder did it after they got their transcendent guys. They, they added another lotto pick that they traded up for and took Cole Aldrich. And it's just like, it's a thing that pretty much every single team does. And it always works out the same way. The only team that had any success at all with it was after getting Derrick Rose, the Bulls draft Taj Gibson, who was like 24 at the time, college senior. And, and that worked out okay. But um, yeah, that's, that's the other team thing that teams tend to do that I would bet well, I don't, I don't know the Pelican. We'll see what they do, but history would say that that's what New Orleans is going to do with this pick is they're going to take a, um, a guy for fit and a guy with probably feeling. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever heard of DealDash.com? It's the best, most honest bidding site where you can win things you never expect at a price you'd never believe. They have over 1,000 auctions every day on electronics, appliances, beauty products, home decor, and even cars. Here's how it works. It's like an auction, but every item starts at $0 and only goes up one cent every time you bid. The kicker is that auction clock restarts after just 10 seconds. That means every time you bid, everyone else has 10 seconds to answer or the item's yours. If you go ahead and buy now, Deal Dash is offering our listeners an extra 100 free bids upon sign-up on top of their other discounts. Go to DealDash.com and use the offer code PELICAN or DealDash.FM slash PELICAN. That's D-E-A-L-D-A-S-H dot F-M slash PELICAN. Sports are coming back and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. Major League Baseball is finally kicking off this week and there's no better place to start wagering than our exclusive partners Bet Online. Check out all the odds, futures, and props to bet on, all available 24-7. And with the return of sports, BetOnline sat down with four, former pro, pro players Eddie George, Harold Reynolds, and seven-time NBA champ Robert Horry. See what they had to say on what it'll be like playing without fans and a series they're calling Fandemic. Visit BetOnline.ag for all your odds and up-to-date sports news. Remember to use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. And I think to your point, the the findings of this article are kind of like meant to be a jumping point rather than a conversation ender. Because I think, you know, as many questions as as the results of this article uh, may have answered, I, I think there's as many questions left to be answered. Just like you said, what, you know, how do teams behave when they have a transcendent player? You know, what do teams do when they actually end up trading? players that are on their rookie scale contract and I think those are follow-ups that uh, I'm definitely going to look into I think we're we're probably going to look into as a group uh, as well and see what the trends are and what this ends up producing and kind of excited to to go down that road but you know going circling back to the conversation about these outlier level skills or uh, physical traits I I just wanted to pick your brain on uh, a very specific trait that may not be visible. So like, you know, I think I, I look at a guy like James Harden and I think you see this in Luca as well, but this ability to start and stop on a dime, this, this change of pace ability. Do you, do you consider that um, as, as one of those skills, if it's in the top 1% of the 1%? 
yeah, like fluidity, like it's the thing that's keeping Drew Holiday from being a perennial all NBA player. Like he has the physicalness, but like imagine, like he moves like a robot, which is crazy when you see his workout videos and how much time he puts on his body, but he doesn't have like that fluidity. And yeah, I think that's something that it's very hard to measure. And I don't know what, you know, test you would be able to do, but that herky jerkiness, um, and that ability to stop and start, I think is an elite physical gift that can't be really added. Like there's no world. And you put Gravis Vasquez in a gym for 20 hours a day there's no exercises that would ever give him half of that. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that's one of those things. And it's one of those things that is not going to really be added to your game. Once you get to the league. Poor Pelicans employee, Gravis Vasquez catching strays out here. Man. <laughs> I mean, he, like he was, he was a skilled guy, a smart guy, but like, he's just the first, thing that comes to my mind when I think of lead feet. Sorry, Gravis. <laughs> I yeah, think if he's listening, that's a win for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hey, and he, he uh, retired from coaching the Pelicans, okay? So he could focus on his body, uh, Mac, <clears throat> and uh, so he could actually start playing. I don't know. I think he wanted to end up playing for another team again. But uh, regardless of that, you know, as far as being sure or not sure about what – type of players to draft I, I do think and this isn't necessarily a product of the research I just think this is a product of the market and, and kind of where the, the game is trending I do think that uh, bigs should not really be taken as high um, as they've gone in recent drafts and particularly one position bigs who don't really project to have much shooting upside or guard skill level upside I, I do agree with that line of thought, but the, it also kind of shows that, okay, well, you don't know when a guy like Paul Millsap is going to start shooting threes and become good at it. You don't know when a guy like Brooke Lopez is going to start hitting threes. You know, those guys started doing that eight, nine, ten years into their career. And so what what does that look like in, in, in this draft and in any draft? You know, there's a, a good number of bigs that can do – all these things a normal big can do rebound, defend, set screens, which is fine, which is, you know, you can get a replacement level big, or you can even get a quality big for relatively cheap. They can, you can do that. But like, I have no idea where you can even begin to project that this guy is going to be a good shooter at some point in his career. And and I think if, and when a player does get that shooting stroke, it, it just changes their whole trajectory. You know, it changes their, their value uh, and, and their, and, and their career outlook. You know, it's funny that 2014 draft that we referenced, the top four guys in win shares, all centers. <laughs> Jokic, Capella, Dwight Powell, I guess you could say, is a stretch big, and Joel Embiid. But at least three guys who could only play one position, um, play that center position. But yeah, I... I think the other thing you have to factor in, I think if you were to ask me why, like why this is such a conundrum, I think it all comes down to the second contract. I think that's what makes, ironically, the NBA draft 
so hard. It has nothing to do with the player or even the team. It has to do with being on the clock for that second contract. And I think the second contract in the NBA, like you're going to find very few guys who get properly paid in the second contract you're either going to massively overpay a guy to keep him because he's 23-24, and in order to keep him, you have to overpay to keep him from going to other teams, or you're going to find a guy who gets massively underpaid because he's already been given up on, and then he becomes a Ben McLemore or something like that who just signs wherever for the league minimum. But I, I really think that's the biggest problem with the NBA draft is I look at a team like the Atlanta Hawks and basically two and a half years in they're on the clock on Tayshawn Prince and they're like, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to pay this guy, the, the Artorian Prince? Yeah. Are we going to pay this guy the 15 to 20 million he wants knowing that, you know, we could probably get a similar player for the MLE. Um, or are we going to just let him go for nothing? And they don't want to do that either. So basically they trade him for a pick that is right around the range that they took him at. And now they're going to kick the can forward, probably take another guy who's similar, face another decision like that in two or three years. Um, To me, that's the problem. It's not really that a guy's good or bad or not a fit or fit, whatever. It's that, you have to decide whether you're going to overpay a guy or let him go for nothing or trade him for whatever you could get by like year three. You look at a guy like, like Nikhil Alexander Walker, like that decision's coming sooner than we think. Either he's going to stink and you're just going to not pick up the option. He's going to be kind of just good enough to pick up the option but eventually, but not really good enough to have any trade value, or he's going to show just enough flashes to where you're going to have to pay him more than what he deserves to be paid based on his production. And it's just it, that to me is what makes it so hard. And the yeah. only way to kind of like to be okay with that decision is to draft a guy who's great. And then you don't, mind paying him but the why of all this is the second nba contract so i'm i'm curious a follow-up on that and and i think it's really interesting because i would argue that the opposite's true for for four-year play or for guys that have been in college for uh either three or four years and then you draft them so i'm now your your comments have me wondering you know is it the the right play in certain situations because of what you just said to take the guy who's coming out of college at 21, 22, and by the time they're hitting their second contract, this is like the Malcolm Brogdon argument. He's yep. basically in his prime, and so you feel less, less risk in saying, this contract, I, I well, by the time he, he's come up for the second contract, I feel like I have a good idea of what he's going to be or what he is. And so if you're paying, if you're maxing him out, you got to feel pretty good about it because he's coming up through his prime years. And, and if you're overpaying a guy at that point, then joke's on you, right? So and you I, don't even have to max him out. Like right. he gets he gets offered less than freaking Otto Porter does. But Otto Porter gets offered all that because he was the number three pick and because he was still young with quote unquote upside. So yeah, like take the college senior, you yeah. know what they are. And even if they are good, you're not gonna have to overpay them because 
the GM's not going to be disillusioning themselves with some mm -hmm. kind of crazy upside. I think that it's kind of twofold there, right? Because one, it goes back into this idea of knowing who's going to be good or knowing who's not going to be good. And there really isn't a reliable way to predict it because, you know, you have a college of a four, or was it maybe five-year college player in, in Siakam? You know, he's a star level player now. And his max is going to be for the duration uh, of his prime. And, and that's right. a, a player that's exceeding, you know, any value that he could have produced on his draft slot. But he's like a, a legitimate uh, star level player that makes a difference on, on a team. Um, but, you know, on, on, on the other side, it's I think Mac and I talked about this offline a little bit. This idea of, of going for those four year college guys. Um, I don't know if if it's the best strategy, but it may be a really good strategy to do in the second round where, you know, you have a bunch of picks and you blowing a pick doesn't really have much impact on your franchise's trajectory as, you know, you say blowing the, the 10th pick or something like that. And, and you can also get cheap production that you'll be able to cost control later. And there's a relatively high floor upside, but again, it kind of goes back to this idea of like, who's going to be good and how do you identify that? But that, that's only an option to take those guys in the second round because everybody's doing the strategy that we're telling them to do, and apparently they already know to do. But in retrospect, like, the Warriors should have taken Draymond Green at seven, not waited to 35. So, like, if other teams become more hip to the, oh, you know, maybe this isn't the right strategy, and now we start taking senior guy like – like, think about it this way. You take R.J. Hampton and let's take somebody like Tyler Bay, who's almost 23 years old. And they have the same amount of production through their rookie contract, whether that's average, whether that's above average, whatever. We do know for a fact who's going to get a much, much bigger contract offer for contract number two. So, no, you're never going to know who's going to be good, who's going to be great, who's not going to be good. But you could play all the outcomes. And I look at a guy like RJ Hampton, and the only way that it turns out good for me is if he's so good that he's worth a max contract. Because the scenario where he's like a B-level player and then now it's extension time, I'm screwed in that scenario. C-level player, I'm probably even a little screwed there. D or F, he's nothing. So, like, every scenario for R.J. Hampton is bad outside of him becoming an all-star, quasi-all-star, and then me being willing to pay him. Versus, like, Tyler Bay, I could draw up a lot of solid scenarios in which I don't get myself into a bad situation three, four years down the line. So like, to me, that's where the debate kind of lies. So do you think a couple things here and, and to first, do you think that kind of contradicts what we talked about earlier with teams becoming less risk averse when they have their franchise level player and then they opt to go for four year guys. Do you think that's what they're thinking? Like, okay, we don't want to end up in a situation where we're, you know, capped out paying a B level player or a C plus level player you know, get someone that has a relatively high floor outcome and we know what we're getting out of, you know, I mean, obviously the logic is there, but does, does that validate their strategy more? And, and two on a larger scale, and did 
does the findings of what we found in, in the article and kind of what we're talking about here, does that kind of indirectly invalidate Dell Demps' whole draft strategy? We're like, okay, like, I'm just not even going to deal with the draft. Let me go and be aggressive with these picks, get players who I think are going to fit my core and, and my timeline. And, and, you know, like without with the, with the way the Pelicans are, they're not getting a Drew Holiday level player in free agency. They're just, they're not, at least they, maybe they will in Zion's future, but they, they just weren't the organization to get that kind of player, but they had the ability to trade for that level of player um, you know, if not draft him and, and they capitalize on that. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad strategy. So is, is kind of Dell's approach validated in this as well? I think Dell, Dell gave the, the new, it's always weird to talk about them back then. Like, do you call them the new Orleans team? Like, do you call them the Pelicans for when Chris Paul was on the team? Or like, do you call them the Hornets? It gets so confusing, <laughs> but anyway, it, if the goal is to be a 50 win team and a playoff team every year and, you know, uh, be better than average with the chance to maybe sneak your way into a Western conference final or final Dell Demps's play was by far the better play. If your goal is to be the number one team out of 30 and that's the only goal and everything else is a failure then no, they, what you should do every single year is swing for the fences. And, I mean, that year he traded for Drew, if he takes Giannis, like, it is very possible that we are looking at a dynasty right now, even though we wouldn't have Zion. Um, so, no, it, it depends what the goal is. But um, can, we, yeah. can we tie that back to – uh ryan's annual articles too though and like the value of a draft pick like i think you were kind of alluding to this mac but just you know should we be revisiting what the value of this pick is in the context of of you know how, what they did for the team that got that drafted them and as such are valuations that teams are placing on picks and relativity so obviously like you you, you still value the, the number one pick way more um but you know how is is the difference between say the 15th pick and the seventh pick that much like not quite as different as maybe what we even originally uh, assessed. Yeah. See what I would do if I had the time. And honestly, if I had the um, desire to as much anymore um, is I would do kind of what Ryan did, but do it um, based on what is still on the board. So like, to me, it's completely stupid and somewhat arbitrary to be like, the sixth pick yields this on average, the seventh pick yields that on average, and even grouping it in a range, what I would like to see is like, okay, at the sixth pick, there are an average of this many A-level players on the board. On the 12th pick, there's an average of this many A-level guys who became A-level players still on the board. Like to me, that's the right way to do it because it's kind of arbitrary where Jimmy Butler was taken, for instance, but he was an A-level player that was still on the board at both picks. Uh, I forget the example you gave, but both picks seven and 12, let's say. Um, so you still have the opportunity to get as good of an opportunity to get Jimmy Butler at either of those picks. So I would like to see the data with that, um, you know, kind of, 
figured out because there is a drop point from what I've seen just going back on drafts. Like there becomes a point where in every draft there is an A-level player that goes somewhere between 7 and 12, 7 and 13. Um, But usually there's only one in that kind of cluster and then even for the next 10 picks after that. Um, And it usually does fall off at a certain point where like at pick seven, you would have history says you have 3.7 a players still on the board, but at pick 12, it's somewhere around 1.3. So that's a long way of saying that that's kind of how I would like to see it going forward um, to be looked at as we look back at old drafts. Yeah. So like I said, it's a, we have a lot of data. Part of this was me picking up, you know, I think I talked to Mason about this on a podcast uh, months ago, but it was me trying to pick up and refine some of my Python skills and being able to extract the data from the places we need to. So I think we're in a spot where we, we do have a good bit of data and, and those are areas that we can explore. And I'm looking forward to continuing to do some of that research and hopefully, you know, the findings are as, illuminating as they were this time around but um definitely an area to keep evaluating member to save hundreds on your auto loan, aren't you? Anyone can join PenFed. As someone terrified of heights, I probably should have looked into that. Probably. Drop me off at the shore. PenFed Credit Union. Visit PenFed.org slash autos or call 1-800-247-5626. Advertised rates available through the PenFed car buying service. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Hello everyone, my name's Colin Kelly and I have one question for you. Do you love fantasy football and do you want to win in 2021? Then be sure to check out Rotoviz Overtime and all the other Rotoviz podcasts with new shows dropping every day on Blue Wire. We've got you covered for all things fantasy football. Subscribe to Rotoviz Overtime today.